Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, the evidence in this case seems to be nothing, right? I would say less than circumstantial. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. We've just wrapped up the Tony Duke story, the man arrested, tried and convicted for the murder of Ronald Hauser, a crime he's always maintained he's innocent of. Now, during the course of these discussions, I speak with these men and women on a regular basis and get very close to these stories. So it's important to get an outside opinion, which is why, after each one of the cases we discuss, we'll be joined by Michael Leonard. Michael Leonard is a defence attorney with decades of trial experience. He is a partner at Leonard Trial Lawyers in Chicago, Illinois, and has a vast knowledge of the criminal justice system in America, and is one minute remaining's voice of reason. So we sat down to discuss the Anthony Duke case. So before we jump into talking about um, Tony's case, I know you've just finished a, a big trial yourself, which you, which you won, so congratulations for that. It's kind of a good example in that, you know, on your show, a lot of times, if you would listen to all these episodes, you think, you know, can you get a case where someone who is innocent, found innocent or found not guilty, more like more, more apt. And I think this was case was a perfect example that we just got a not guilty on where I really felt from the get go, the case took four years wow. that this was innocent. But the fact we had to go to trial and prove it and get the not guilty jury verdict is a lot out of a person, but kind of shows that the system can work, you know? So do you mind me asking what this person was up for? Yeah, it's, it's a lot different than what you have kind of featured in that it was a what's called a white collar crime, meaning a yep. financial fraud. Yeah. And in our, in our country, you know, the Medicare system provides benefits for people who are generally over 65. And so they were, my client and the other client were, alleged to have defrauded Medicare by millions of dollars, right? Mm. And the key question was, you know, did my client and did the other the other defendant, did they know they were breaking the law? Were they willfully participating in this scheme? And of course, our position always was my client did not. She was simply doing her job and carrying out her job duties, and she never believed that anything she was doing was illegal. Mm. And the jury, after a two-week trial, concurred, which is, you know, makes you feel good about the system. Let's talk Anthony Duke, because as always, Mr. Leonard, you are the voice of reason when it comes to these cases, because I get you know embedded into them. And first of all, before we jump into the weeds of it, what is your overarching opinion on this 
particular case. Yeah, from what we know from your, you know, four episodes or so, I mean, it really strikes me as a miscarriage of justice. I mean, I can't believe. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on a second. Wait a second. I don't mean to interrupt you there, Mr. Leonard, but did you just start by saying this is a miscarriage of justice? I did, Jack. Yes. I mean, I hate, I hate, We've had I a hate win. To, <laughs> <laughs> I hate to ever agree with anything that you say, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I've been fascinated. I mean, one of one of the things that's difficult is I would love to have the trial transcripts. Yes, right? that, that is hard. I've been trying to get hold of those myself. Yeah, yeah. Because you have a defendant who's kind of characterizing what happened at trial. I'd love to hear from the defense attorney. But from you know what we know so far, assuming that all to be true, uh, the evidence in this case seems to be nothing. Right. Mm. Uh, I would say less than circumstantial. So my view of just from what's been presented you know, really calls into question what happened here and why. And, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, especially in uh, maybe more of a rural county, uh, this is more able to happen, although this can happen anywhere, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm really uh, concerned about the lack of evidence and the, the what they're calling evidence doesn't seem to be really evidence of anything. So uh, we can kind of break it down from there. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's speak of evidence or, or lack thereof, as we've been, uh, as we've already said. I want to start with the one that really bothers me the most. It's the one thing that from the very get-go, I'm just like shaking my head going, how is this even allowed to be discussed in the courtroom? I'm talking the Sabbaths, but one of the detectives, these bullet I mean, I'm not big on guns and, and that sort of stuff, but they're, you know, they're these things that hold a projectile with inside the gun. They say they found some in Tony's backyard. The way that in which these were found and handled, to me, just seems so incredibly wrong. So, I mean, so apparently, so let's just recap for anyone. Tony arrives home, he's got a detective and his parole officer in his driveway, and there's a detective wandering around in his yard. I pull in the driveway, my parole officer and a detective are there. They meet me and tell me, oh, we'll go inside and have an interview. And then I walk through the, the back gate and meet the other detective. Oh, nice place, da-da-da-da, you know. I said, yeah, it looks like you made yourself right at home. And he snickered. Well, we went in the house, they did a little home check, we're talking, and then that same detective went back outside, only to return however long later. Some thin plastic sabots in his hand. I just thought they were playing some good cop, bad cop. I said, I don't want that. You're going to put that in my hand. I don't know nothing about it. Well, he left. These then become key evidence in a murder trial. And Tony says that during that trial, because no photos were taken of this evidence in the backyard where the detective found them, he didn't even call out his partner and say, hey, you need to come and see this for a second, just to even have a, you know someone else there to say, yes, that's where they were. And then apparently at a trial... They printed out a Google map image of his yard, drew a circle around where the detective says he found them, and that is what they used. Yeah, a- absolutely absurd. I mean, that would almost never happen anywhere. So that's why it's so crazy when you hear it, and I'm, I'm taking as word that that was the evidence. You know, what we would typically call that in most cases, they'd call those shell casings, okay? Yeah. Um, his terminology is a little bit unusual in our system. You'd say shell casings. That's what I thought. Shell they were just shell casings. Yeah. yeah. And, and shell casings in and of themselves prove nothing, right? Mm. But what typically happens in a trial, we'll talk about the mishandling the evidence in a second, but typically the way those would be relevant, admissible, and persuasive to a jury is if you could show that, you know, a particular bullet um, created certain markings on them 
and you're you're making the argument that the shot that shot the individual was Ron, the name of the victim. Yeah, Ron. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You would try to show through an expert witness testimony that that uh, whatever gun was used to shoot him was is consistent with matches up with the markings on the shell casings that they found, right? Yeah. So you don't even seem to have that. No, I mean, they but, had an expert to say that they looked like the, the similar shell casing that would be used in that particular weapon. He didn't say they were they were an exact match. There's not like They're not like he's saying, yeah, no, this was fired from the exact same gun. Just, so, yeah, they, it sounds like they didn't say that. But, yeah, usually evidence is persuasive if you can get an expert to testify that it came from the same weapon. Mm. And we don't even seem to have that. But before you ever get to that, yeah, the idea that someone would go out, uh, first of all, you would think there would be would have been a motion to suppress the evidence, right, mm-hmm. uh, which would have been filed before the trial. Number one, that they didn't even have the right to search the property. And then number two, more importantly, that the chain of custody of the evidence was so absurdly contaminated and, and they didn't follow really mm-hmm. any procedures that it should be, they shouldn't be allowed to use it, that that, that evidence should be barred for purposes of trial. Mm-hmm. And if you throw that out, if you can't use that, obviously that was one of the linchpins of their cases, it would make their case, which seemed to be already extraordinarily weak, even weaker. And, you know, you, you hit upon it when you were talking about the, with the other Lawrence, that they call him the other Lawrence now? Oh, yeah, 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 my brother. Yeah, 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 yeah. The don't, other... t- don't tell him I called him that. <laughs> no, but the other one, yeah, yeah. You've got his expert, you know, position on how evidence is usually handled. Yeah. And he's right. I mean, in any uh, county, city, or state here in our country, you know, you, what you would do, first of all, you'd have to have, you know, either consent to search or a search warrant. And secondly, more importantly, if you spotted what you purport to be evidence, you have an evidence technician out there, you would cordon off the area you would take pictures mm. to show where the evidence is you would never move it you certainly wouldn't put it in your hand and you certainly wouldn't confront the defendant with that so-called evidence you would do all the steps that you know most people would be familiar with really from watching a tv program it's basic stuff i mean in my opinion it's yeah. not as i've said in the show like i'm not a detective but i don't think you have to be a detective to anyone to hear that would go well that just doesn't sound right like, oh, it's, it's completely, I mean, they would be able to, you know, you'd be able to show, first of all, for, for purposes of a pretrial motion, most jurisdictions would throw that stuff out. It would be barred, right? Yeah. And then even if somehow it was admissible, you would have a field day and cross-examination. You would show that clearly, I'm sure they violated their own policies, whatever county this was, whether state this, but they violated their own policies and standards for handling evidence. So there would be a lot you could do with that. And it would be great, again, if we get your hands in the trial transcripts to see what hay they're able to make of that on cross-examination in a defense, you know, through the defense lawyers questioning other witnesses. Well, according to um, Tony's mum, she she seems to think that the defense attorney didn't even question him on how he obtained that evidence. He was walking around my yard, my privacy-fenced yard. He's inside my backyard walking around and walks in my house and holds his hand out and pulls out some kind of sabot or something and says, oh, what's this? I found it over there in the backyard. <coughs> is that protocol? Well, you this found is... found evidence? Yeah, I know. picked it up with your hand? Yeah, it's ridiculous. But you present this as evidence in a trial yeah. and a lawyer doesn't stand up and say, how did you obtain it? Yeah. Where are the photos of it on the property? Where did you find it? Which is really remarkable. Yeah, I mean, number one, to, to not have a pretrial motion filed, you know, trying to bar the evidence, trying to suppress it is would be virtually unheard of. And then secondly, could not vigorously cross-examine it, the witness on the way it was handled, the chain of custody, all that stuff would be extraordinarily unusual. 
So we're in in agreement completely that that's, that whole situation is just ridiculous, and how it ever got allowed in into evidence in the first place is just mind blowing. Not only that, I mean, there just seems to be issues all the way along this. I mean, even if we look towards the actual crime scene itself, um, the the gentleman that found or two gentlemen that found Ron eventually in the in the actual situation have taken a bag of marijuana that they found at the crime scene, thrown it into the bushes. The police have then found it and said, "Oh, yeah. do you know anything about this?" And they're like, "Oh, yeah, no, we threw that in the bushes because we didn't want we didn't want him to get in trouble for yeah. having the marijuana." Number one, and number two, we didn't want anyone to think he'd been killed over a drug deal gone wrong. Yeah, I mean, num- Red number flags? one, the idea, yeah, the idea that those two individuals were not the primary suspects from the get-go based upon that is hard to believe. I mean, it's certainly the one guy who initially went out there claims he saw a broken window, came back and got the other guy, and then admits that he moved the evidence makes absolutely no sense. Their explanation makes no sense. And then again, what were the prints that they found? What were the DNA they found on the baggie? Uh, it sounded like there might have even been some blood mm-hmm. at the scene. It sounds like there was a palm print. Mm-hmm. All sorts of key pieces of evidence here. Number one, there's issue with how they were handled. And secondly, the significance of them, it seems like they're all the types of evidence that would actually exonerate this defendant, not not tend to corroborate, but tend to exonerate him because it would exclude him as the person that did this. Didn't want him to get in trouble and for people to think that he was killed over a drug deal gone bad. But why wouldn't they want the people to think that? I don't know, but I can speculate that they know more than what they let on to be. Because, I mean, a, a dead man's not going to get in trouble with the police for having marijuana. No. From my viewpoint, it's a completely contaminated crime scene now that we know that these people have been in that place. They've got, and so then the police are saying, oh, well, he's usually, he's known to have this money sitting on his dryer. Well, there, there's no money there. So he's had money stolen. It's like, hold on, you're making an assumption because people say he usually has a lot of money, but there's no money here. So he must have had his money stolen. Number one, there's an assumption there. But number two, you, you know, you know that two people have been in this crime scene at least and, and messed with it. Mood stuff. Yeah, what I, I and which which again does doesn't disqualify a prosecution because that happens you know all the time. People come upon a scene, they might do something intentionally or unintentionally or negligently that might have an impact upon the crime scene. But more importantly, there's still a lot of forensic evidence that was either had the ability to be gathered or was gathered that would seem to tend to exonerate Mr. Duke because there'd be an absence of fingerprints, there'd be an absence of DNA from him, I'm saying, mm-hmm. and then there would certainly be the presence of fingerprints and DNA from other people, including things like cigarette butts, you know, drink glasses, prints in the area, prints on the bag, the palm print. So, you know, there's there's a strong and compelling case that there's nothing physically, forensically, that ties Mr. Duke to the crime scene. And, and, you know, we haven't even touched upon something that the prosecution doesn't need to prove. You never need to prove someone's motive, Mm -hmm. but it's obviously very persuasive to a jury to try to do that. And in this case, you know, taking him at his word, um, he has the farthest thing from Mona. Seemed to have a great relationship with this gentleman. Mm -hmm. Seemed to have a friendship, a professional relationship, you know, mutual respect someone that may even been sort of a mentor to him. Mm. So it just doesn't even make sense. What would motivate Mr. Duke to go there and do that? Of course, he could do that any day of the week, steal money from him probably, but mm-hmm. it just doesn't add up, you know, from a common sense <laughs> standpoint. Yeah, he was 
was always there, you know. If he wasn't working or if we weren't working with him, go over there and hang out, do some chores. Brian and I always had regular jobs, so he uh, would keep good tree-cutting jobs where we could all go have fun and catch up on the week, you know, put some cash in our pockets. And this is the thing that I keep finding when I talk to other people. Like I, I recently spoke to a current serving deputy, not in the particular county that um, Mr. Duke was um, arrested and found guilty, um, but he is he knows Tony and he's known him for some time. And even he said, I know this guy and I know he was out working hard. Like he, he was always doing stuff to earn his money. So for me to think that he would go out and kill someone for a bit of extra cash just does not add up. But this was the, the angle that they were going with was that they were suggesting that he was broke in the lead up to this uh, and everyone was concerned because after the murder he then bought a few things. He bought a couple of items, um, you know, an air compressor and stuff like that. And that's what they're saying, oh, well, where did he get this money from? You know, and, and I've asked him about that. And I said, you know, this is what they're saying, that you had no money. He goes, and his, his response to me was simple. Do your friends and family know how much money you have in, on you? Well, no, they don't. He said, well, there you go. It's like, they don't know how much money I had. They're making assumptions that I had no money. And then he explained that, you know, he was setting up this business because he'd been given contracts by the state, uh, by certain counties to do bits and pieces and all the rest of it. So he has got a, an answer to those questions. And that was the literally the only motive that they said it was, was over this money and he wanted money. Yeah, and, and if, if it was legitimate, if the, if the state in their prosecution could corroborate that he li- really did have a financial motive, of course, that would always be something strongly that would be persuasive to a jury. It doesn't sound like from what we know they're able to prevent to present much admissible evidence of to support corroborate the idea that he did have the financial motive. So yeah, that was the only thing that would be potentially driving him. But again, uh, we're also forgetting the fact that Mr. Duke, apparently not only is there no forensic evidence Mm -hmm. tying him to the crime scene, he had an alibi, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and then you have these suspicious actions of people who were there at the scene and the final piece, which is really fascinating. And I'd like to know if it's supported by the police reports is it supported by the admissions of the agents at the trial? Is it really true that at one point they confronted him and asked him to, you know, say that it was his father? I'd love to know if there's so would I. But no one will return my call to let me know whether that's true or not. I've tried calling the the sheriff's department about five, six, seven times, and no one will return my calls. The one area that you might be able to do, I mean, usually through a Freedom of Information Act request, you can typically get a lot of the reports from these cases. Mm. Um, so that that might be an avenue to get some of the stuff. And it would be great, of course, if we could get the benefit of the trial transcripts. And do we have any idea who, who was it to defend him in a trial? Uh, who defended him? Yeah. Uh, apparently, any, uh, according to Tony, it's a friend of the judge. Oh, okay. Not, not so great, right? <laughs> apparently it took forever to get someone to agree because there was a number, yeah. of, a number of attorneys turned it down and said, no, I don't want this case. That brings up a good point because it depends upon the county and state that you're in. But some have, instead of having a public defender's office that sits there on a full-time basis, mm. some counties and jurisdictions rely only upon appointed counsel in those cases. So there's not as if there's a, a public defender office sitting there, meaning that someone has to be appointed mm. and they may be very qualified or very unqualified to handle that case. Yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the get-go with this one, it has bothered me the whole way through. I mean, looking at the, the weapon again, no, no weapon was ever recovered. Um, they're going off the inference of that they believe it was a weapon that Tony had borrowed from a friend of his who got up on the stand and told them that he returned that weapon to her before Christmas. So yeah, before- which was very compelling. I heard I heard that. That seems very compelling. Yeah, you, the, you have the absence of the weapon that they claim did the crime, you know, being in the possession of the defendant at the time of the crime. You got the defendant with an alibi. You got a defendant who is seemingly exonerated by the lack of forensic evidence tying him to the scene. You seem to have strong motives of, of others. You seem to have a lack of motive by him. So really, to me, it, it really appears as a very troubling case. I think the last thing we haven't touched upon is the um, this whole issue with the uh, polygraph. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Most people if they had counsel, would never agree to be polygraphed because there's really nothing in it for them. Number one, it's completely inadmissible. It can't be used in court. Mm. Number two, it's prone to great error. It's, uh, uh, you know, subject to a lot of scrutiny in terms of, you know, the the qualifications of the polygraph examiner, the type of questions, the individual, the way it's conducted. So there's lots of problems with it. But if you're an attorney, you know, what you would want to do, if anything, is maybe go get your own polygraph examiner, mm. produce that evidence to the state to say, hey, look, here's what we did. Here's what it shows. It's still inadmissible. Mm. But again, it could be persuasive to say, here's why you should not prosecute this person. We've gone out, hired our person. Here's what they say. No no lawyer would ever willingly want their client to go in and just have a government examiner do it. Mm. There's really little upside, right? I mean, once once in a while, they'll say, okay, yeah, you know, we, we think that that excludes you from our viewpoint. We're not going to investigate you, but that's very rare. Yeah. And in this case, they went back to the well. They did it to him multiple times. Mm-hmm. He never should have been there. He should have had the advice of counsel telling him, hey, there's nothing in there's this no for point. you. Right? Yeah. And the trouble was they then use, obviously they can't use, as we know, they can't use that in the court case. They It's inadmissible. But what they did use was the fact that, oh, well, He's apparently Googled how to beat a polygraph test. Now, he says that wasn't him. When he was called in to do a polygraph, he says his girlfriend at the time 
Googled about polygraph tests and said, you shouldn't do this. They're going to use it against you no matter what. She was the one Googling all that sort of stuff and that's why. And then she was like, she's saying, just don't do it. And he's going, I've got nothing to hide. I'm fine to do it. So, and then they used that in court and said, he Googled how to beat it. So that shows an inference of guilt. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because it sounds like it probably was a subject of pretrial motion practice. Most lawyers would try to exclude that because you're basically in a backdoor fashion getting in the fact that there was a polygraph, right? Yeah. And you're trying to, you're basically trying to make an excuse for why it didn't come up the way you wanted it to from the government's standpoint, right? Yeah. Uh, but you're not, since you can't admit it, you're saying, oh, well, we're not, we're not trying to show it's admissible, mm-hmm. but, you know, we're trying to show it's essentially, like you said, consciousness of guilt to show mm-hmm. that there was some sort of cover up. Why would you cover up if you didn't have anything to worry about is the, is the legal theory from the government, right? But, you know, in my view, no, no evidence about that should have ever came in at all on that subject. And it sounds like, I mean, we don't really know, but it sounds like that was given some particular weight, maybe in this case by the jury. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also, but just quickly going back to the father, as we said, you know, Tony has mentioned that they first, uh, you know, brought the father in and questioned him over this and said to Tony, you know, we think your father's done this. We think he's trying to set you up, et cetera, et cetera. Again, I haven't been able to confirm that and I will see if I can. I, I do know because I've read an article that his, his dad was detained. So I do know he yeah. definitely was detained over this, um, but he was, yeah. later, he was later released. Yeah, amazing that if, if it's true, amazing that, they would attempt to get an individual to agree to sign a statement that someone else did it. And then when they don't do it, he ends up being the he, person he, prosecuted. I was literally yeah. going to, that's what I was going to go to. He then becomes a, a witness for the prosecution. And then he's yeah, on the stand crazy. talking against Tony saying, oh, you know, I was very worried about he was spending this money and I don't, you know, he didn't have this money to spend. And, you know, when he found out about Ron dying, he didn't really give much of a, you know, uh, and he, he didn't show much emotion about it and, you know, I've always been. Yeah, and, and, it's weird. Yeah, and what and what I thought also was significant is that uh, this individual, Mr. Duke, was given a number of opportunities to do things or to say things to you that would advance his own cause. You know, certainly back then, he was given opportunities to say and do things which would, you know, implicate others, and he simply refused to do it. Certainly, in all those instances, it would have been to his benefit to do that, right? Yeah. And yet he didn't. So to me, that's certainly evidence that this is not someone who's being untruthful because he had the opportunity back then and then the opportunity with you on several occasions <clears throat> to point the finger at others, which he refrained from doing. So mm. it gives me, you know, I think it gives him more credibility. Yeah, know, well, I mean, a amount of times he's, because I've said to him, you know, do you, do you think your father would do that? And he said, well, I, I don't want to think he would do that. No, I, I don't think he would. So, I mean, even now yeah, he's which, still which sort is, of... Which sticks. is surprising because he, sh- he should be, if he, he should be, you know, he, if, if he's a liar or looking a way out of this, he should be telling you, yeah, he had a lot of opportunity with you to take things in a way that would either exonerate himself or point the finger at others. And he seemed to pretty much consistently decline to do that, mm. which gave, to me, you know, made his story more trustworthy, made him more credible. Mm. And, you know, the, the kid's story is, you know, to me compelling you know it'd be it'd be it would be a a fun case to try for a guy like that because he really does seem like a guy who you know sadly his background is so much like yeah so many so many criminal defendants where they have a horrible childhood 
deprived of all sorts of things, mm-hmm. mistreated, abused in many occasions, you know, and yet he seems like to be a guy who sort of got it at some point, you know, after his first incarceration and really seemed to be on this track. If, if from all accounts, even not just his own, but from others mm. on this, where he was seemingly a very blue collar, hardworking guy. Mm. And the way he talks, he, he certainly has values, right? Totally. It, it would have been, been a fun case to defend. And it just seems extraordinarily weak, you know? So I hate to come on your show and agree with you, Jack, but, <laughs> but I, this one I do. I, I just, I don't know where to go from here. I'm like, I'm so confused. Usually I come in here ready for a fight. To, you're telling me that this case was, was weak at best. It certainly doesn't seem like proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It certainly doesn't sound like from what we have been told that he got a vigorous defense. It doesn't seem like, you know, legitimate efforts were made pre-trial to exclude evidence. And it doesn't sound like from what we know that there was vigorous cross-examination of these government witnesses, but it's just, it's a compelling case from what we know, I'll I'll tell you that. Well, I mean, the frustrating thing thing here is that he's got one more um, appeal. Oh, does he still have a habeas petition Habeas, he's got a habeas in at the moment. That's so that's that's pending. It's in, yeah. He said, and then he said, he said, once this is through, I'm done. That's good to hear. Yeah, I would love to know if you if you get a case number on that. I'd love to look that up and see what arguments they're making in the habeas. But yeah, so if your viewers or listeners don't know, no, I mean, uh, I don't know. So please explain. (laughs) Yeah. So what happens is, you know, this case was a, a state court, you know, Michigan case. And then it would go up to the Court of Appeals, right? Mm, mm. And then to the highest court of the state. And so, you know, it's a hard route sometimes to win uh, when you're arguing that the evidence wasn't substantial enough because typically appellate courts are not very willing to reverse on the weight of the evidence, right? Saying the weight isn't isn't sufficient. They typically don't reverse on that, although they do in, in a, a rare variety of cases. Uh, so, however, because there's this notion that the state system might not afford you an adequate remedy or there could be some inherent biases in the system, some problems, you can go to federal court and argue that your constitutional rights were violated and you file what's called a habeas petition. Mm. So you're getting a federal court to take a new look at your case. They're, They're still, you know, they're still boxed in. They can only look at what was introduced. They can look at affidavits and things of that if someone recants. But you're, you're basically looking for a constitutional violation from a court that doesn't arguably have an interest in the outcome of the case. Right, okay. So sounds like he's in the federal system pursuing the habeas. I, I wish him good luck on that one for sure. Again, I try and remain on the fence with these stories, but this one has frustrated the hell. Like just purely because of, you know, the way in which the whole thing was handled is just to me. Oh, and the amount of people who've come forward to talk to me about certain detectives in the case, obviously I can't name names because nothing's ever been proven, but there is so many people who have come forward to me and say, in fact, I spoke to a gentleman who said this uh, one particular detective tried to pin a, a death on me as well. It took me two and a half years to clear my name uh, and it was ended up being thrown out due to lack of evidence. I've got a guy who used to work for Livingston County who's come on and said, you know, this guy, th- th- these detectives have a very strong strike rate and, you know, they're, not, they're actually no longer detectives with the, with the county anymore. Yeah, well, I, let's let's hope that this you know the podcast shines some light on this particular case because that's that's one of the beauties of this that it can really bring to light a case that would otherwise get little or no attention at all because mm. let's face it there are literally thousands of criminal prosecutions in each state across the country in a given year yeah and so it's very difficult to get anyone's attention if you kind unless you kind of shed that kind of light on it that you are I, I have two closing comments for you number Go. one you know after I 
uh, was able to prevail in that trial this week, mm. I went out to the local pub and there certainly was not one sip remaining. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, from, from an American standpoint, the case we really want you to take a look at, Jack, yes. is we all want to know what happened to the Wiggles. Can you the do Wiggles? A Can you give a podcast tell us what happened to them? Where did they go? They're, they're still around, my friend. They've just had so many uh, outfit changes and uh, people come in and come out that I think they've, uh, yeah, they may have done their dust. I mean, the original Wiggles have uh, are very quickly disbanded and uh, I think there's one original left and they've got all new people in there now. Yeah. So there's no great mystery. You can't do a four-session four podcast on that. Unfortunately, you know, that's uh, what, that's what I'm looking for next. You know? <laughs> where, where are the Wiggles? I don't know if that podcast I mean, it would go very far at all. But uh, yes, it would be big. It would be huge over here. I oh, don't know really? Muscles, but it would be huge. Massive, yeah. massive wiggles over in the states. Well, look, I'm always <laughs> open to to cracking the states. I'm trying to crack the states with this show. So maybe I need to get in with a Wiggles podcast first. Uh, it would then, be it would be for parents of a certain age whose kids are now grown up. And yeah, are like wondering what happened because we we spent a lot of years. 10, 15 years ago is watching them. So Listening we want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Michael, as always, absolute pleasure. I mean, again, I'm flabbergasted by our discussion uh, today on this case. Uh, hopefully in our next one, you'll have reverted back to completely disagreeing with everything I say <laughs> and the world will be right again. <laughs> no, it's great. I, I really, it's it's interesting to hear about a case. And I, I really hope that you, you know, put some attention to this mm. and with the habeas that, you know, at a minimum, he's able to get a new trial because it sounds like such a flimsy mm. uh, case that was presented by the state. But I guess we'll, we'll wait and see on that. All right. Well, as always, thank you very much indeed for weighing in on, the, uh, on this case. And we look forward to the next one. Hey, Jack, I appreciate your time. Take care. So as always, a huge thank you to Michael for his precious time and for giving us his opinion. We will, of course, talk to him after our next case. This is a prepaid collect call from Jason Vukovich, an incarcerated individual at Goose Creek Correctional Centre. In fact, it was more so an image of Jason and his brother in court that sent the internet crazy and saw Jason get a nickname. Yeah, I think they started referring to me as the Alaskan Avenger. Coming up, the true story of the Alaskan Avenger from the man himself. A story that has to be heard to be believed. And he opened his front door. And when he opened his front door, I literally just walked right past him into, into his apartment or into his fourplex and said, come on, man, come on. And he followed me inside. And uh, I brought him downstairs and sat. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
had him on his own bed, um, just proceeded to open hand, backhand, slap him, and he fell back on the bed a couple of times. I just did my absolute best, um, you know, to use corporal uh, punishment and to reinforce to him that he was not to see that baby ever again, etc., etc. And that if I heard that he was seeing her again, I was going to come back and visit him again. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.